This is the first shear in a series of ten shearim, detailing, of course, the ten makos, the ten plagues in Mitzrayim, which form the centerpiece of Parshas Vaera and Bo, Yitzias Mitzrayim, and the highlight, or one of the highlights of the Seder, of the night of the Haggadah. Um, there are many different terms in the Torah to describe a makah, and without going into detail about the differences and the subtleties between those terms, it's obvious that Every Makkah was in the very least multifunctional and it served many different purposes. And this was a battle waged against Paro and Egyptian culture. And it was a battle waged by Kurdish Baruch on many fronts, not even to mention whatever hidden messages the Makos delivered to the Jewish people about their own Geula. Um, in part, the Makos were putative, punishing the Egyptians. In part, they were um, disciplining Paro. In part, they were breaking him down. In part, they were theological, demonstrating certain theological norms, the monotheistic norms. So the four or five words that we encounter in reading Va'er and Bo, the word Mofes, the word Os, the word Magifa, the word Shvatim, the word Makah, that I will literally hit, Makhebe Mateh. So, uh, for example, the word Magifa, plague, that would be very, very punitive. Or the word Shvatim would be punitive in a different way, the word Mishpah, justice. Whereas the word makar would just be to break Paro's will, to to break him down, to break his resolve. Whereas the word mofes or the word os may be much more religious in meaning, to signify, to demonstrate a religious reality. So going through the makos requires not just isolating the one purpose of the makar, but the multiple layers which the makar served, and that doesn't even bring into account the interaction between the makos, that these ten can be divided into many different series or sequences, the most famous of which, but not the only one, is Rabbi Huda's division into three, three, and four, the Tzachadash Biachav, but there are so many other ways to divide the makos, series of three, series of two. Um, so these shiurim will attempt to demonstrate some of the subtle themes of the makos. The first makos, of course, was the makos of Dam, and it's easy to detect two very clear but two very different um, themes, two very different purposes. And according to one Mifarish in the Torah, they were so different that they were actually executed by different people. The primary function of Damas, of course, is to... Um, it, it's on the one hand, I guess it could be divided itself into two. On the one hand, just filling a country with blood, symbolically introduces them to their ultimate death, to the horror, to the fact that this will be a, as we would say, bloody process. This will be a war against the Egyptians. Um, filling the Nile with blood, the same Nile that had been the source of blood for, e- for Jewish babies. Uh, again, Jewish babies perhaps didn't bleed, they more likely drowned. But this was uh, the, the, the grave site that so many Jewish children had been buried alive. This was the cemetery. And filling the Egyptian Nile with blood was the first salvo in a counter-war, a counter-insurgency by the Rabboni Shalom against the Egyptians. Um, Beyond just filling the Nile with blood, it's very clear the whole country was filled with blood. And to a degree, not even, or not only, water in the country, but there's an interesting pasuk, as the Makkah of Dam is described, Vahiyadam Mitzrayim. Okay, that could be 
a description of blood everywhere in Egypt, everywhere there was water sources. But there's a Pasuk, this is Pasuk Yutes, that the blood covered, or the blood, or actually it doesn't, v'hayadam b'chol eretz mitzrayim uva'itzim uva'avanim there was blood in the entire Egypt not just in the Yeor, the Nile, the Agamot the, the Agamim, or the, the um, water repositories the reservoirs, al-kol mehem but also uva'itzim uva'avanim so, some interpret this to just be a different reference to other forms of water that the Simavanim doesn't refer to blood coming out of trees or blood coming out of stones, but blood coming to affect water that was gathered in Etzimuvavanim. This is turning very quickly to Rashi. Rashi interprets Uvaitzimuvavanim to mean the Mayim, water in wooden cups or chalices, and water in stone or earthenware cups. So according to Rashi at least, this description of blood everywhere in the Etzim, in the Afanim, this is not really stretching the parameters of Makas Dam beyond water, it's just expanding the scope of which water was affected. Not only was Nile water affected, not only was a reservoir water or waters in, 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 in containers and, and water towers, but even single cups of water, isolated cups of water. And in fact, uh, the Medrash takes us even further that even if a Jew would give an Egyptian a glass of water to drink, it would miraculously turn into blood. Even if a Jew and an Egyptian would drink from the same cup, they would share the same cup of water with two different straws. The water which the Egyptian would draw would turn into blood, and the water which the Jew would draw would remain water. So Rashi interprets Eitzim Ravonim not as a new description of the scope, but there are Midrashim that describe the entire country being filled with blood, trees dripping blood, um, stones, houses, dripping blood. Samakas Dam, at least according to this read of the Pasuk, is, a, is an attempt to fill Egypt with blood, to, to shock them, to terrorize them. It may be centered on the Yoar, which was the, the cemetery in which so many Jewish children were buried alive, but it extended throughout the entire country. The second theme, relatedly, is not just to fill the country with blood, but to cut off their water source, and not just the source of water, but the source of life, and don't take this, uh, don't understate this, because in Egypt, the place which doesn't rain that often, the rising and fall of the Nile River and the irrigation of, of the Nile to provide water, tributaries, and inlets to the entire land it is essentially the source of life. And if that goes, the entire economy, the entire um, ability to feed the country could be called into question. And we already witnessed, more or less, how Egypt survive and outlasted the terrible famines in the end of Sefer Bracious, in part because of Yosef's wisdom to store up um, plentiful uh, grains during the years of plenty, but in part because they had a direct water source which wasn't fully dependent upon rainfall. And the Pesukah in Sefer Devar makes it very clear that Eretz Yisrael, <coughs> Yisrael is told that Eretz Yisrael is unlike Egypt, that in Egypt there's constant water supply, in Eretz Yisrael, the water supply, as we know, is far more dependent upon constant rain, which is a direct gift from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu can withhold in times of rebellion and betrayal. So, the, the water source going dry is not just lack water, lack a deficiency of water, water shortage, and, and the lawns can't be, can't be sprinkled, the lawns can't be cultivated, but the very lifeblood, the life source of the Egyptian country is being threatened, 
And to a degree, that's why there's so much emphasis in Parshas Ve'era twice, when HaKadosh Baruch informs Moshe of what will happen, and then once again as it happens, not just to the Nile going, but to the fish in the Nile being killed as well, the Hadaga, Asher Bayar Mesa, the fish in the Nile are dying, they will die, Moshe is told, and they ultimately die when the Makkah is implemented. And we see that fish was one of the foods which was the staple of the Egyptian diet, when the Jewish people are rebelling in Parshas Bahaloscha, they say, we remember the fish we ate in Mitzrayim, we remember how, uh, how tasty it was, how comfortable life was in Egypt. So perhaps the grains form the, the backbone of, of the Egyptian breadbasket of, of eating, but perhaps the fish were more of a luxury item, they were something that the Jews yearned for. They had bread in the desert, they had mun, but they yearned for the proposed luxury, they told themselves, of Egypt and the fish, which represented that luxury. But essentially, when the, when the Nile goes, and when the waters turn into blood, and the Pesukim themselves are very clear, it wasn't just the Nile, but there's no water to drink in Egypt. They've got to import their water, they've got to dig underground water systems to carry water from other locations. In the end of the description, they have to dig all sorts of alternate methods. This is the first process of cutting off the Egyptian um, source of life, water, irrigation, the plants evidently are going to suffer, the grains are going to suffer, there's no fish to eat in Mitzrayim. Not every maka has to be seen as absolutely devastating. It can be seen as a slow process, and part of the process increments the intensity level from tempered, moderate makos to more intense makos of makos b'charos. And, and part of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's test is to see whether power will respond to lighter warnings, and, and if he not, then he has to be punished and warned more stiffly. And that's how life, and that's how HaKadosh Baruch Hu treats people who need messages. Sometimes the warnings are subtle, and if the subtle warnings are unheeded, the warnings can become much more intense. This can be a light attack on the Egyptian breadbasket, and when makos such as barad and arba come, then all the grains are affected, and, and there really is no more food to eat in Mitzrayim. And, and in some ways that le- sees or casts barad and arba as, con- as, continu- as continuations of the makah of dam. But there's an entirely different drama unfolding in the makah of dam. And the drama is centered on the R. That's why the, especially the initial presentation of the Maka is a Maka about the R. Moshe is told to warn Paro, and then Pasuk Yudches, the fish in the R will die, the R will fester and become smelly, odorous, and the Egyptians will no longer be able to drink water from the Yor. One pasta contains the word Yor three times. If this were just an attack on water supply and water systems, the Yor shouldn't be mentioned so frequently, so prominently. Um, and when the Makkah ultimately unfolds, Pasuk Yutes, Emorel Aron, Kach Matchan, Etayetcha, Omeimei, Mitzrayim, you should stretch your staff on all the waters of Egypt, Al Narasam, the rivers, Al Yarehem, on the Yar. In fact, it's not just the Yar which is mentioned as the target of this Makkah, but it's actually the scene in which the warning is first delivered. And there's a lot of the Makos which can be detected by the types of warnings which were given, if there were warnings at all, how they were given, who gave the warnings, what the language of the warning was. So here the location of the warning as well as the language of the warning is important. 
Vayom Hashem al Moshe. Hashem tells Moshe, Kaved Lei Paro Mein L'Shalach Am Paro's heart is heavy. He won't dispatch or um, emancipate the people. Lechel Paro Baboker. You should accost Paro in the morning. Hinei Yotzei Hamayma. He is. He will. He will visit. He he travels every morning to the Nile River. V'nitzavtalik Rasal Sfas Hayor. And you should stand opposing him. You should face him. You should confront him on the Nile River. Now Rashi quotes the Medrash that. Paro traveled every morning to the Nile River to hide the fact that he was human, to hide the fact that he had to defecate because he was trying to pitch himself as a god. So it's purely, uh, it's, 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 it's a psychological ploy. This is Paro at his, at his vulnerable moment when he's trying to conceal his humanity and you will capture him, you will catch him in a moment of vulnerability and hopefully that will shake his, his confidence and perhaps he'll listen. Ultimately he doesn't. But the Medrash is more interested not in parapsychology, but in the religious connotations of that moment. That Paro, every day, twice a week, different accounts in the Medrash and then Rishonim, would wake up and actually walk to the Nile River. Now, why he walked to the Nile River is unclear, but it certainly had a religious symbolism or connotation to it. He offered sacrifices... He woke up with his party by the Nile River. Many ancient kings, their waking up was a religious ceremony. People attended the waking up, the rising sun. So Paro visits the Nile every morning religiously, not just that he's disciplined and routinely, but it's part of a religious process, some claim, to check the rise and fall of the tide. But either way, this is a religious ceremony that Paro conducts every morning, perhaps with many members of his court, of his religious inner circle, and Moshe is infiltrating this moment, and Moshe is warning about an attack on the Nile. The Egyptians had many different deities, many different pagan gods which they worshipped, and to a degree that's really the definition of paganism. We live in a world that's so far removed from paganism, we're so monotheistically oriented, even the monotheistic religions that are fully monotheistic, there's a sense of a one centralized god. But paganism is built on multiplicity of beings, multiplicity of deities, and there's so many deities which the Egyptians worship, the sun and the animals, and and hopefully some of the Makos will describe some of the deities they worship. But without question, one of the central, if not the central point of their worship was the Nile River, and not just the Nile River physically, but everything the Nile River stood for, the reptiles associated with the Nile, the reptile gods inscribed on the frescoes of tombs, and the hieroglyphs of the the man who has the head of a of a reptile, of a snake, or of a of a crocodile. We'll talk about the crocodiles a little bit later. Um, this sense of Egyptians worshiping the Nile is very clearly conveyed by a pasuk in Yechezkel, which describes probably probably Makas Dam. There's a little bit of Makas Sfarde on this, but it's most important, most centrally describing Makas Dam. And Hashem says, I am upon you, Paro. This is Yechezkel Perachavtes. I am upon you, the big tanim, the big crocodile, the big uh, reptile, Harovetz Besochi Arav, who lies crouching in the Nile. Asher Amar, who constantly says, Li Ori, the Nile is mine, Vania Satini, and I have created it. We'll talk about this a little bit later. So here have an image of, of Paro seeing himself as a big crocodile, crouching in the Nile River, claiming that I am the Nile, I have fashioned the Nile, and Hashem ultimately goes fishing, and he captures Paro, as, a, as one would capture a fish, 
pulling him out of the Nile River as the dead fish are clinging to the scales of this crocodile crouching in the Nile River. So, this is an image of Yechezkel, Perachavtes, in which the Nile is the central god, the central deity. And it's also important because, again, in paganism, there's there is less of a distance between God and people. People adopt their gods as their own, and, and they deify themselves. This is very clear in the story of Haman, where Haman puts a, a, uh, an idol or some image around his neck and asks people to bow down to him. And part of the appeal of paganism is Masi the Adam. You can fashion your own gods, and, and, and the gap between human beings and God is much much different than it is in monotheism, where there's a clear hierarchy where God is transcendent and God is in heaven, and we are subject to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's, or, or to Lahavdil and monotheist, other monotheistic religions, Lahavdil, to, to, to the commandments and to the summons of a transcendent God. And, and it's easy to see why the Nile became a godlike um, image or a godlike deity, because it provided life, it provided food, it provided, and really... In some ways, it was technologic. It was technology. It was the technology of the time. There were no other countries in the Mediterranean Crescent that had the ability to irrigate themselves and provide constant water supply and constant irrigation capacity as the Egyptians. And, uh, you know, in the modern world, science is detached from religion and technology is not imbued with the religious pulse. But in ancient times and in ancient cultures, uh, power, technology, uh, progress was all seen as driven by religious deities in heaven that can be controlled, that can be assuaged, that can be bribed, that can be bought off, that can be adopted. So the Nile River was seen as the source of Egyptian strength, of Egyptian robust economy. And Paro adopted or appropriated that power, that technology for himself. And he saw himself as controlling the Nile, controlling Egypt, controlling the ancient world as this reptile, godlike figure crouching in the Nile, the source of his strength, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes fishing for him, literally fishes him out of the Nile in Yechezkel Perichavtes. So essentially Dam, to a degree Tzardaya, but most powerfully Dam is an attack on this Nile River, not on the water source per se, but on the Nile River and the attack on the foremost and most prominent Egyptian deity. And that's why when, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructs Moshe to warn Paro, Pasuk Yud Zayin, Ka'amar Hashem, Bezos Teda Ki'ani Hashem. There's a theological message to Makas Dam, not just an attack, vengeance, retribution, breaking the Egyptian will and resolve, but this is one of the many theological lessons. It's an attack on the Nile, Bezos Teda Ki'ani Hashem. Now you will know that I am God, not the Nile, not you. So that's why the Nile figures so prominently. That's why um, the words appear. That's why the scene of Moshe's warning is not just the Nile River, but the Nile River in the morning where there's a religious ceremony taking place. That's why it's important for the fish to die, not only to cut off the fish as a source of food, because it's probably a luxury food, not really as necessary as bread and grains, but when the fish die, something happens. The Nile begins to smell. And the Nile is smelly. The Nile uh, is, becomes a, a swamp, becomes a, becomes a sewer. And they can't drink water from the orb because they can't get close to the orb. It just smells too bad. And this is embarrassing. This is an attempt not just to debunk theologically the Egyptian god, 
but to embarrass them, to, you know, to, to rout out paganism. It's not sufficient just to prove logically. Religion is something which goes far beyond human logic. It rests in the human psyche, in the human, in the human subconscious. And, and one of the most powerful sensors, the most powerful sensory uh, messages is the sense of smell. So they spend an entire week, according to most accounts, smelling this terrible, terrible odor emerging from the Nile River because of these dying, deteriorating, decomposing fish. And fish themselves have a terrible smell, nothing worse than dying fish. And deep down, they're, they're rewired. They can no longer look at this Nile as a god because it just smells too bad. And they, it's very hard to get the smell out of their nostrils. So the scene of the warning is the Nile River... The Nile is attacked, not just empirically, but sensor. The, the, the senses are attacked. And that's why, in, in some ways, this first Makkah of Dam is still part of an earlier sequence. I talked in the beginning of this year about the sequencing of Makos. Moshe is told to take the staff, to take the Mata, um, and the Mata, which turned into a Tanin which previously, before the Makos began, Moshe performs a miracle to try to scare Paro, and, and the staff turns into a some sort of amphibious reptilian animal, um, probably a snake, maybe an, a crocodile, but something deadly and something scary. And Moshe's mate turns into a tanin, and then Paro's mad magicians and sorcerers recreate that process, and then Moshe um, absorbs or swallows theirs. Um, why... It may have been the same Mateh, but Moshe only had one Mateh. Or maybe he may have had one, and Aaron had one, but either way, Moshe knows which staff to take. Why does Hashem have to instruct him to take the staff that turns into a tannin? The answer is because this is part of that process. The first Makkah of Dam is not just a Makkah, but it's part B of a two-step lesson to Paro. The tannin represented the god that they saw as really controlling the Nile. The Nile didn't have deified power. There was some god in heaven that looked like a reptile that they sculpted on their caves that was in charge of the Nile. So the first part of debunking that Nile deification was attacking their image of that reptilian god. So Moshe's staff turns into that reptile, or that tanim, and... And, and, and it pokes fun, it taunts the Egyptians, that you could just take a twig of wood and turn it into a tannin. And, and then Pyro's sorcerers recreate, duplicate that act, and then Moshe's staff swallows their staff. So this, this whole snake, reptile, god-like image, right away is, is dismissed, is trivialized. It seems very infantile. I could swallow yours. A, 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 tw- a twig or a branch can become a tannin. And then the second part of that debunking, or that repudiation of the Nile as a deity, is not just debunking this image of a god who controlled the Nile, but actually attacking the Nile itself, turning it into blood, making it stink and fester, giving it a smelly odor, seeing the fish die. So Moshe is instructed to, to attack the Nile, with the staff that turned into a Nachash, without describing the differences between Nachash and Tanin, because Hashem is reminding him this is really part two of this rejection of the Egyptian deity. And in the end of the, the plague of Dam, Paro becomes intransigent, and he refuses to listen, 
and Vayifen Paro, he returns to his home, Vayavol Beso, Velo Shaslibo Gamlazos, he doesn't listen to the Maka of Dan as well. What does it mean, Gamlazos? What else was he not listening to? What else was he not heeding? Presumably, he wasn't listening or he wasn't absorbing the message of the staff turning into a tannin, into a snake, and he wasn't absorbing the second part of that lesson of the Nile River being attacked. So, this is really the second part of Maka's Dam. And interestingly enough, and this is a fascinating, fascinating element, if you look at the parasha very carefully, the Abrabanel believes that these were two completely separate plagues. One was an attack on the Nile per se, everything that it symbolized and represented religiously, theologically to the Egyptians. And one was just an attack on the Egyptian water, turning it into blood and forcing the Egyptians to struggle, to drink, to provide life for themselves, to irrigate their their farms, and, and, and to water their grains. And they were so separate, their Barbanel claims, they were actually performed by different people. Moshe attacked the Nile, and Aaron attacked the water sources. And if you look carefully at the Psukim, there is a lot of basis to this separation, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu initially tells Moshe that Paro is intransigent, meet him in the morning, speaking directly to Moshe, challenge him, demand that he release the Jewish people, and threaten him that you will attack the Nile. So when Moshe is instructed, he's instructed alone, and he's directed only to the Nile. When the actual plague is implemented, Hashem then speaks to Moshe and Aharon, and he tells them together to take their staffs and attack the Nile and all the waters, the waters in the reservoirs, the waters that are contained in, in water containers. And Moshe and Aharon follow through on HaKadosh Baruch Hu's instruction. So the original command is given to Moshe, and it's spoken only about the Nile, and then during the implementation, Moshe and Aaron together attack both the Nile, as well as all the water sources. So there is spaces to suggest that there were two completely different phenomena occurring. One was an attack on the Nile, one was an assault on the water sources, and they were so different that they were performed by different people, just to highlight or underscore their difference. Even if we don't accept the Abrabinel, and somehow we solve the Moshe and Aharon uh, discrepancy, as Rashi does, that Moshe was instructed, but then he had to join forces with Aharon, because it wasn't appropriate for Moshe to attack the Nile, which had been the source of his uh, of his salvation when he was thrown into the Nile, so Aaron had to team up with him. Either way, it's clear that there were really three parts to Makazdam. One is a symbolic uh, death threat, Number two, practically a, a moderate attempt to cause, I would say, difficulty, hardship to the Egyptians, no longer fish to eat, water wasn't available, they have to locate other water sources, they have to import water from Turkey. And then finally, an attack on the Nile as the Egyptian religious base. That's why the warning was delivered. As Paro attends the Nile for a religious ceremony in the morning, that's why the staff, which had turned into a reptile, a snake, or a crocodile, that same staff was delivering an assault on the Nile River, and, a, and the Nile River became a smelly sewer Egyptians couldn't bear looking at, let alone respecting or deifying.